0: So today we'll be looking at Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. And uh, here's my question for you, okay? Here's my question for you as we think about the precious person and work of Christ and what He calls us to do here. Have you given yourself to Christ? We're going to see that Christ gave Himself for you, But have you given yourself to Christ? Now, my main idea, I don't normally start with my main idea, but I want you to understand, what is the theme? What's the main idea here? Here it is. I I think this is what it is. that Jesus gave Himself totally to His death. And as a result of that, it actually calls us to do something. Christ calls us to give ourselves totally to Him and die to ourselves. In Matthew 16, verse 21, this is a turning point in The Gospel according to Matthew, and the reason I say that is you look at the very first words in Matthew 16, verse 21. Notice the first three words says, From that time. That's the turning point. In fact, the whole chapter of Matthew 16 is kind of the hinge on which the book turns. But you can see this turning point in those words there, from that time. Uh, At this time... Jesus Christ began to show His disciples some deeper and more difficult truths, particularly in regards to His divine plan and His work. Remember, at this point in time, they're up in Caesarea Philippi, about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get, and still remain in Israel. I mean, they're, they're way north of, of the Sea of Galilee at this point, in pagan land, surrounded by idols. Jesus gives his divine plan and work. And by the way, it was not that he had said nothing previously about his rejection and crucifixion. In fact, uh, before this, Jesus had alluded to his death indirectly one time in chapter 9. And he alluded to his resurrection one time in chapter 12. So, So this isn't necessarily the first time, but... But directly, Jesus is coming out directly here and beginning to teach openly and repeatedly. You're going to see this many, many times leading up to chapter 28. He's going to talk about his death and his resurrection. And so this teaching is, is in fact, a very difficult teaching. In fact, it was so difficult for the twelve disciples to receive that Jesus has to repeat it several times throughout these next few chapters. So he's going to keep coming back to it again and again. Jesus explains that I am going to go to Jerusalem. I will be betrayed. I will be arrested. I will be beaten. He said, I will be tried, falsely tried, crucified. But we see here that he, he knows what's going to happen. He's not going to stay dead. He is going to rise again just as what was promised. He will rise again on the third day. So this is the turning point. So it's it's indirectly, uh, indirectly it's not the first time Jesus talks about his death and resurrection, but explicitly, (laughs) openly, and repeatedly, we're going to see that this is is the first time mentioned in Matthew. So it's a very significant passage. So look what Jesus says as he he says that, that he gave himself totally to his death. Look at verse 21. Christ gave himself totally to his death. Verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There's the gospel in a nutshell for you, in summary form. Interestingly enough, Jesus uses the word must in verse 21. Did you see that? It says that Jesus began to show His disciples that He must. The must of which Jesus spoke, by the way, was not of human devotion to some some great uh, ideal. This is a divine imperative. It's a divine command. It's absolutely necessary. That's why you see the word must there. You need to understand something. God had no backup plan. There was no plan B, there was no alternative plan to Christ coming and doing what he said right here that he was going to do. (laughs) This must came thundering out of eternity. It was the essential plan that God had set in, in, in motion, by the way, according to Ephesians 1, something he set in motion before the foundation of the world, before he created this earth. This was the plan. There is no other plan. But what made this plan necessary? Because it, it says he, he had to do this. It was, it was a must. Why? Now, you're not going to find this in this passage, but throughout Scripture you'll see at least four reasons. Number one, first, there was human sin. All right? Ever since Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve brought the whole human race into sin. We call it the fall. And so, it, it first we see for human sin, it's for which the, the Messiah had to give His life. He, he paid the penalty. He took our place. He was the substitutionary atonement. You, do you understand? You deserve to die on the cross. You're the one who should have been nailed on the cross. Those nails should have gone through your wrist and through your feet. But He took your place. And Matthew 20 says... He was a ransom for many. Second reason that this plan was necessary is because of the divine requirement. The Hebrews chapter 9 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's always the way it's been. That's why the Israelites had to continually make these sacrifices and shed innocent animals' blood. But for them, it only covered, it didn't deal with it. Until the perfect Lamb of God came and dealt forever, once and for all, with sin. Why was this plan necessary? Number three, it's because of the divine decree. It's the divine decree of God's sovereign foreknowledge. In Ephesians 1, God's, God knew what was going to happen. And it was, it was before the foundation of the world, before He ever created any, anything on planet Earth. He, this is the plan. I'm going to send my son to pay the penalty for sin. And number four, it's because of the prophetic promise that the Messiah must die. This is something you see throughout Scripture. For example, uh, in Psalm 22, we, we read earlier in Isaiah chapter 53, God's plan was for Jesus to come and to pay the penalty for sin. It was promised. and God's plan was not subject to change, by the way. God doesn't change His mind. That's one of those things that makes Him God. It's something that has to be believed or rejected. It's not something that can be altered. This is the plan. It's the only plan. And that's why it's necessary. But what are the stages of God's plan? Well, they're laid out for us here in Matthew 16, verse 21. In verse 21, in fact, Jesus mentions four stages of the divine plan that that he came to fulfill. There's four stages. I'll just highlight these for you in verse 21. Number one, the first must. Why must Jesus do this? He says the first must was for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. It says in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. You need to understand that he had to go to the city of sacrifices, the place where the temple was. He had to become the Passover lamb. Interestingly enough, do you, do you understand this? When Christ was on His way to the cross, thousands of Jews were slaughtering lambs. That's what was taking place in the temple. When Christ went to the cross, He was the lamb. He was that Passover lamb. He offered himself, as Hebrews 7 says, once for all. There was no, no longer a need for animals to be sacrificed, sacrificed in the temple. So it's in the divine plan. The Messiah should go to Jerusalem. It's the divinely ordained place of sacrifice. It's, it's the place that Jews would come from all over Israel to come and, and to do their sacrifice. And it's, it's why, by the way, it's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, I quote Luke 13, verse 33. I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. That's what Jesus said. So he had to go to Jerusalem. Number two, the second must in God's great plan was for that his son, the Messiah, would suffer many things. And Notice there's three groups mentioned here in verse 21, from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Those three groups of religious leaders uh, comprised the Sanhedrin. Uh, we'll read about them later on to come in Matthew. But the Sanhedrin was the, the, the Jewish high council, if you will, uh, and their headquarters was in Jerusalem. The El- if you wonder what these groups are, by the way, the elders were primarily the leaders of the various tribes, the twelve tribes of Israel that were scattered throughout Israel. Throughout Israel. The chief priests were largely Sadducees, They were the aristocrats, and the the scribes were largely made of Pharisees. Kind of the working religious class, so to speak. But because of their unbelief and their rejection, as well as their, their great political power, Jesus would suffer many things at the hands of these men. He knew it was coming, and he went to Jerusalem anyway. Number three. The third must in God's plan was that Jesus be killed. He knew he was going to be killed. And by the way, the word killed there in your Bible in the context means he was murdered. He knew he was going to get murdered. By the way, Jesus was not legally tried. Uh, he was never proven guilty. In fact, Pilate, you remember, Pilate also recognized that Jesus was innocent. These, these charges, false charges, were brought against him, and in fact they, they what did they they basically had to pay people, didn't they? To bring up the, these false charges against Jesus. These people were determined to get rid of him at any cost. Lie, cheat, steal, whatever it, they had to do to, to, to do it. And so it was in God's plan that at the hand of these evil men, that Jesus Christ would be murdered. That was his plan. In fact we, we read it in Isaiah chapter fifty three, didn't we? It pleased the Lord that to crush his son. Peter talked about this when he preached in Acts chapter two, when he was preaching to the men of Israel, here's what he said, quote, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of of human beings there, right in that same verse. They're responsible for what they did. But it was God's plan all along. Number four. The fourth and last must in verse 21, that Jesus would be raised up on the third day. That was no accident. That was God's plan. And so because of the disciples' distress, they're they're, they're hearing what Jesus is saying here, You know, wait a minute, we're we're going to Jerusalem? We're going right into the heart of the bee's nest? (laughs) This is like, this is worse than the lion's den. We're going to Jerusalem, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer many things by these religious leaders, and I'm going to be killed. At that point, their brain shut off. That's what I think. Brain shut off. They didn't even hear number four, they didn't even hear the good news that Jesus would be raised. They failed to hear that one, I think. But, but yet it was that this truth that made the others bearable, isn't it? We, we hear in 1 Corinthians all the time, if Christ is not risen, our, our faith is futile. We, we're living in vain. It's, it's all meaningless. It's empty, isn't it? So this was the truth of victory that had conquered those seeming defeats of the first three. This was the must of triumph and glory. Christ would conquer sin, he would conquer death, he would conquer Satan, and he did. Well, it doesn't end there in this passage. Jesus we see received opposition even from amongst the 12. But Christ went God's way despite the opposition that we see here and throughout the book of Matthew, look at verse 22. Peter took him, that's Jesus, he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Here's what he said, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned, that's Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice, first of all, as we see, Christ goes God's way despite the opposition, that he, he, he's getting the opposition, first of all, we see here from the very disciples themselves. Remember, Jesus is, or sorry, Peter, he's kind of like the spokesman for the whole group. And Peter rebukes Jesus in verse 22. So, because what Jesus had just said, all about all of his suffering and going to Jerusalem and being killed, that was. Contrary to what Peter strongly believed. Peter. So, so what does Peter do? Because he doesn't believe that. He takes Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Wow, that, that's amazing. I'm not sure I would have the audacity to pull the Lord Jesus Christ aside and rebuke him. But that's what Peter does. Uh, and interestingly enough, the word rebuke, there carried the idea of authoritative judgment, and, and in the Greek language, it was often reserved for uh, leaders um, bringing a, an authoritative judgment against somebody that was under their jurisdiction. So uh, it's almost like Peter's thinking, "Whoa, whoa, Christ! You know, you, you, you just stepped out of line here. I'm gonna—you uh, need my help." That's kind of the sense you get. And so to reinforce his rebuke, Peter, in fact, goes even farther than here. He says, no, 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 in fact, this will never happen. (laughs) This shall never happen to you, he says. It's just completely contradicting contradicting what Jesus just said was going to happen. And so because he couldn't understand or he couldn't accept this idea of a humiliated Messiah, Peter rejected God's plan for redemption. Well, as a result of that, Jesus rebukes Satan. Now, some people think, now wait a minute, Peter's the one speaking here. Why Why does Jesus speak to Satan? Well, that's because Satan is behind what Peter was saying. That's why. I mean, on the surface, Peter's intention seemed loving, right? I mean, if one of your friends was, was saying, you know, hey... Uh, You know, uh, next week I'm going to hop on the plane and I'm going to go to Mecca and I'm going to I'm going to preach the gospel to all those those Arabs at Mecca. Um, By the way, here's my last will and testament. Right? If one of your friends was doing that, you'd be thinking, "Is he okay? Is this guy okay? He he's lost his marbles, right? I mean, this this he's he's going to die. They're going to kill him." Right? Well, that's kind of like Peter. He's got good intentions, most likely, but he truly did not want his Lord and friend to die. But when Peter rebuked him for even considering the idea of going to his death, the Lord must have looked the disciple. Imagine this. He probably looked him straight in the eye because it says he turned. Look, probably looked him straight in the eye and he said, Get behind me, Satan. Imagine Jesus Christ saying that to you. Looking you straight in the eye, I'd say, Get behind me, Satan. I can only imagine that was devastating to Peter. It, it would have, I, I think I probably would have just fell on the ground if, if he had said that to me. It must have been a devastating thing. It probably shook Peter to the core. And so before Peter had a chance to finish his objections, Jesus abruptly cuts him off. He accused him of being the mouthpiece for his adversary, which, of course, in this case is Satan. And so because Peter had taken the side of Satan, the Bible says he became, notice it says, a hindrance to Christ. That word hindrance in the English Standard Version is an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word scandalon. Sounds a lot like scandal, doesn't it? Scandalon. We get the English word scandal from that. It's a word that originally was used of an animal trap. In particular, is that, that part of where, where the bait was placed. That's, that's how that word was used in common everyday Greek. And so the term eventually came to be used of luring a person into captivity or destruction. So Jesus is saying, Peter... You're trying, actually he's talking to Satan, Satan, you're trying to lure me into destruction. You're trying to lure me away from God's plan, and it's not going to work. Satan was using Peter to set a trap for Jesus, just like he did in Matthew 4 when Jesus was out in the wilderness. And so at the end of verse 23, Jesus gives the reason Peter fell into Satan's trap and found himself trying to lure the Lord into it as well. Notice the end of verse 23. Jesus says, For you, that's Peter, are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's that's the reason. His mind's not set on God's interest. And so because he is fallen and sinful, that's the way mankind is. We are... Uh, often not concerned about the Lord's interest, we're more concerned about our own interest. And so because Peter was reasoning from his own finite and sinful mind here, he found himself siding with Satan, and notice he's actually opposing God. And That's why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Well, that leads to the response that Jesus wants all true followers of him to have all true disciples of christ must give themselves totally to christ that's what verse 24 says look at verse 24 then jesus told his disciples if anyone by the way that's not just the 12 that's any disciple of christ anyone who wants to follow christ here's what you must do if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's break that down for a moment. But before we get there, I, I, I want you to, be, to understand that this is a wonderful verse, okay? Uh, sometimes we, we look at this negatively. But this is one of these passages that just sets forth the heart of Christian discipleship. You want to know what Christian discipleship looks like? This is the heart. It really strikes a death blow as well to the self-centered false gospels that are so popular in contemporary Christianity. I'll give you an example. This passage just destroys the false gospel of getting. Oh, there's that. That's very popular. Get, get, get. You know, God's God's like a vending machine. You know, and uh, you know, you just press your number and your letter, and you you, you're going to get exactly what you punch in. Some people look at God as kind of like a, a genie, you know, rub the bottle, genie pops out, okay, grant my three wishes. Now, God's not a genie. He's not a vending machine. He's not going to provide a believer's every request. If you're a believer, you know that's not, that's not reality for you. God's not going to do everything you request, because everything we want is not necessarily that's going, is going to bring Him glory, and it's not what's best for you. But this passage also destroys the false gospel of the health and wealth prosperity gospel, which claims, you know, hey, if a believer's not healthy and prosperous, well, he's just not simply exercised his divine rights, or else, you know, he doesn't have enough faith. You don't have enough faith. You just need to claim your blessings. Really? Well, this verse just shatters that false gospel. This passage destroys the false gospel of self-esteem. By the way, you won't find self-esteem in the Bible. You're not going to find self, you know, not, you, you'll find self-love, but you're not going to find it uh, as a good thing, right? Self-esteem and self-love are false gospels. The idea, you know, just appeals to our, to our selfishness is what it does. Okay, the Bible says we love ourselves, and the problem is we love ourselves too much. No man ever hated themselves. And so this, this just destroys that false gospel. So let's look at these three steps of Christian discipleship coming from verse 24. Number one, the true follower of Christ must deny himself. You must deny yourself. If, if, you, want to be, you, if you want to claim to be a true follower of Christ, you've got to deny yourself. A person who's not willing to deny themselves cannot claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It, it, there, there's no middle ground here. You can't sit on the fence. You know, you can't have one foot on one side of the fence, one foot on the other side of the fence, and, you know, and, and you kind of have your cake and eat it too. It doesn't work that way. The word deny, in fact, means to completely disown. You must completely disown yourself. It, it, the idea is you utterly separate one, uh, oneself from someone. In this case, you're to utterly separate your, yourself from yourself. It's the same word, in fact, Jesus used to describe Peter's denial of him. When Jesus was being tried, remember, Peter denied Jesus Christ. The same Greek word is used in both passages. G- Peter said, no, 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 I don't know that guy. <laughs> Man, he, Peter's, he was afraid. And that's exactly the kind of denial that a believer is to make in regard to himself. But, but in this case, it's a, it's a denying of yourself. You're not denying Christ, you're denying yourself. In other words, you're to utterly disown yourself. You're to refuse to acknowledge the self of the old self. By old self, I mean the, that old nature. And so Jesus' words here, we, we could paraphrase them this way, all right? I'll put it kind of put it in my own words. Let him refuse any association or companionship with himself. That's what you're to do. So the self, by the way, to which Jesus refers, is not uh, your personal identity. Okay? You, you, your personal identity is distinct. You are a distinct individual. In fact, your fingerprints show that, don't they? Nobody else in the entire world has your fingerprint. God made your fingerprint. You are distinct. You are unique. Okay, uh, so, so the self to which Jesus refers is not one's personal identity. Every person's unique creation of God. You're, you're special in, in that sense. And so the self that Jesus is speaking about here is, is your natural self. It's your sinful self. It's that rebellious self. It's the unredeemed self. That's what you are to deny. Have no companionship with that self. So number one, the true follower of Christ must deny himself. Number two, according to verse 24, the true follower of Christ must be willing to pay any price for Christ's sake. So notice it it, in verse 24, after denying yourself, it says, take up your cross. You're to take up your cross. By the way, taking up one's cross—let uh, me tell you what it's not. All right. Unfortunately, there's there's a lot of misconception on this idea of taking up your cross. All right. Th- this is not some mystical level of selfless, deeper spiritual life. Okay. Th- this is not sitting on the floor with your legs crossed and humming and and doing chants and you know. This is not a deeper spiritual life. That, that somehow only this, the religious elite can attain to. No, this is not what it's talking about. Uh, nor is it the common trials and hardships that all persons experience sometime in their life. Okay? The, Alright, this is not having a back pain or a headache or, you know, because <clears throat> I've heard people say that, you know, oh man, i got a migraine today, well I've got to take up my cross. No, that's not what this is talking about. All right, A cross is not having an unsaved husband, a nagging wife, or some bossy mother-in-law. Okay, I've heard that too. If the shoe fits, wear it. It's not having some physical handicap. It's not suffering from some incurable disease. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he says, take up your cross and follow him. You say, great, okay, that's not what it is. Can you just please tell me what it is? Alright? Here's what it is. Taking up your cross, taking up one's cross is simply, it means this. You're to be willing to pay any price for Christ's sake. Any price for Christ's sake. It's the willingness to endure shame. It's the willingness to endure embarrassment. It's the willingness to be slandered for Christ, to be rejected for Christ, to be persecuted for Christ, and if necessary, to be willing to be martyred for Christ. That's what he's saying. Now, you have to understand, we, we need to interpret this in light of what did the original hearers understand when Jesus said, take up your cross. Because, you know, we, 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 don't, we don't have people being crucified today outside of Hamilton, right? That's not happening today. So we don't quite understand what this means, Right? You know, in fact, my own daughter's sitting there with a cross around her neck. You know, it's, it's all kind of nice and cute. And, I mean, that's okay if you want to do that. If it helps you remember Christ, if you're boasting in the cross of Christ, then great. If that's what it does, then that's okay. But, you know, we've kind of tamed the cross in many ways. So, the people of Jesus' day, the cross was a shocking Reality. It was the instrument of execution that was reserved for the worst Roman uh, criminals and, and, and enemies of the state. It was disgusting. It was a symbol of torture and death that awaited those who dared to raise their hand against the Roman Empire. <laughs> and so when the disciples in the crowd heard Jesus speaking here, take up the cross, they're not thinking anything mystical. You know, Peter's not thinking of an obnoxious mother-in-law. You know that 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 thought didn't cross his mind, and, and so they immediately pictured some poor condemned soul who is going to carry the crossbeam, and he's going to be nailed to it, and he's going to have one long, excruciating, humiliating death. That's what they're thinking. We're talking about a man who would take up his cross and he would begin his death march. Just like Jesus. Remember, Jesus had to carry at least part of the cross to Calvary. But he was so weak at that time, he had to get help. He couldn't even do that. And so for a disciple of Christ to take up his cross, Jesus is literally saying, you need to be willing to start the death march. Start the death march. Whatever, wherever that path leads, if it includes martyrdom, you've got to be willing to take up that cross even to martyrdom. And so to be a disciple of Jesus is to be willing to suffer the shame, the pain, and even the death of a condemned criminal. Are you willing to do that? That's what it means to be a true follower of Christ. But there's a third step. Because Jesus says that the True follower of Him must follow Him. You've got to be a follower of Christ. And the idea here, by the way, is we're we're talking about loyal obedience. Loyal obedience. Jesus said here, only after a person denies himself and takes up his cross is this kind of a person prepared to follow me. You, you, You cannot skip steps one and two. And so the true disciple is, submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ. This, and, and by the way, this ends up becoming a pattern of your life. It's a pattern. Now, of course, we're still going to sin. But the general pattern of your life is you, you are submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever His will is, whatever the Word of God says, that's what you want to do. Now, you might be like Paul in Romans 7. You know, Paul in Romans 7 is, you know, Hey, I don't always do you know, what, what God wants me to do. Sometimes I'm doing the things that God doesn't want me to do, but, you know, oh, he's frustrated. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Now, we all experience that, okay? But, but the general direction of our life is that, that we want to obey God. We don't love our sin, we hate our sin, generally. In Matthew 7 21, Jesus said this Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Did did you see that? It's not the one who's going around giving lip service to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the person who's doing something. Did you see that? It's the one who's doing the will of, of the Father. And so, to continue in his word is to be his true disciple. Well, this is a high calling then here, isn't it? These are some ra- these are radical steps, aren't they? Now, some some of you might be sitting here thinking, "Now, oh, wait a minute! Whoa! Who um, <clears throat> am I willing to go on this death march? Am I? Am I really ready to go on this death march? I'm not so sure this is a good investment. This is, this is sounding like a bad investment. Well, if if you're wondering if this is a good or a bad investment, should I really be a follower of Christ? Look what Jesus says next, because he says says giving yourself to him is the best investment. Giving yourself to Christ is the best investment you'll ever make. In fact, there's three incentives that Jesus says here for giving yourself to Christ. Three incentives, and, and I know there's three, because they all, at least in the English Standard Version, they all start with the word for. Okay, So if you see the word for... In verses 25 through 27, that's that's giving you the incentive to follow Christ. Okay, so let's read these verses together and notice the word "for" because it's these are the incentives you need to notice. All right, starting in verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what? It, <laughs> What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Did you notice each one of those verses starts with the word for? So there's three incentives for giving yourself to Christ. So if you're thinking, wow, whoa, whoa. Denying myself, taking up my cross, and following Christ is, man, that's hard. That, that's difficult. That, that's painful. That doesn't sound very nice. I'm not sure if I really want to do that. Okay? And if you're thinking that way, Jesus gives us some wonderful incentives for following Him. And they're all introduced with that word for. The first one's in verse 25. So if you give yourself totally to Christ, it says, You will save your soul. You will save your soul. I'm just going to give all three of them here and then we'll talk about these. Number two is if you give yourself totally to Christ, you will find your soul is more valuable than the entire world. Nothing more valuable than your soul. And number three, if you give yourself totally to Christ, you'll be rewarded when He returns. Let's just talk about these for a moment. Because we see some similar terms. In fact, they're synonyms. You need to understand them as synonyms in our passage. The words life and soul. Life and soul. Think think, synonym. They're very similar. Uh, in fact, they're basically talking about the same thing. Both words represent that inner person of you. The real you, the inner person, is your life and soul here. So what's going on here? when? When, he, when Jesus is talking about this life and soul and how valuable it is, and these incentives for following Him, what's going on? Well, the Lord's saying that whoever lives only to save his earthly, physical life, you know what's going to happen? Jesus says you're going to lose the opportunity for eternal life, something that is way more valuable than your physical, temporary life. But on the other hand, whoever is willing to give up this earthly, worldly life, if you're willing to suffer and die for Christ's sake, if you're willing to go on that death march, wherever that leads you, and you're willing to do it for Christ's sake, Jesus says you're going to find eternal life. So, my friend, you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make. Every person must make a choice. Okay? You can't sit on the fence. You can't say, well, you know, I'm not going to make a choice uh, you know, I'm just going to let the, the chips fall as they may. And, you know, you, you can't have one of those fatalistic attitudes when it comes to this, okay? You can go for it now, and you can lose your life, your soul forever. Or Jesus says you can forsake it now, and you can gain your life and soul forever. You've got to make a choice now. There, and there will be no second chance later on. Interesting enough here in verse 26, Jesus reinforced the paradox in verse 26. He adds those words, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? So, really, that, that's got to be one of the greatest uh, the, the, the greatest overstatements that you'll ever read. That's an overstatement. Jesus was saying, now just imagine this. If you can, if you can imagine this, What would it be like to possess the whole world? I I can't imagine that. But anyway, that's what Jesus is trying to bring us to. Imagine you own the whole world. Everything in the world. What lasting benefit would that be if you gained the whole world and you lost your soul? Jesus says, you just lost your eternal life. (laughs) It profits you Nothing. You you don't take any of that with you. So a person like that would be a walking dead man, literally. A walking dead man. Temporarily, you own everything, but when you face eternity, then it's eternity in hell, in the flames of the lake of fire, rather than in heaven with God. And I say, what a waste. What a waste. Well, as Jesus continues His instruction going on in verse 27 there, He spoke prophetically of His second coming here when He says that the Son of Man would return in His Father's glory with His angels. And at that time, the Lord's going to reward His servants for their faithfulness. I love verse 28 as well. It's a a highly debated passage, by the way, verse 28. But you say, what what is Jesus talking about here in verse 28? Look look at verse 28. Let's just read it. Because He says, "Truly, Amen. That's what truly means, amen. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. In verse 28, Jesus was speaking of His return, which led Him to state that some of those disciples that were there with Him would not taste death. In other words, they would not experience death. Well, this statement, as I said, caused many to misunderstand the kingdom program. They wonder how the disciples uh, saw the Lord coming in his kingdom. Uh, There's there's at least four views on this particular verse. Uh, I don't don't think I'm going to go into all those views at the moment, but needless to say, there's a lot of different views, even amongst good Christians. Now, I, I believe the explanations actually found in the next event, Starting in chapter 17, which if you see the heading in your Bible right above chapter 17, it's the Transfiguration. So if you look at the context, it's the Transfiguration where Jesus was on the mount and the veil of His, of his humanity, if you will, was, was, was taken away so that Peter, James, and John saw Christ's glory shining forth. And they're just so amazed. They're like, hey, let's build a temple here. In fact, let's build several temples <laughs> So they saw Christ's glory. So I think this is referring primarily to Peter, James, and John who saw Jesus transfigured right before their very eyes. Uh, Contextually, I think that's what it's primarily referring to. Let's think about some application and we'll be done. Number one, you must go God's way. You must go God's way. That's what Jesus did, didn't he? No matter what the opposition was, even if it was coming from some of his closest friends like Peter, the problem was people were always trying to make Jesus conform to their ideas. You know, they, they wanted to make him this earthly king, overthrow the Romans. And even Peter's trying to do this to Jesus. And, and the reality is everybody faces similar pressures from well-meaning people. In fact, we might even get this kind of pressure from our spouse, from our children, from a close friend, from somebody in our congregation, from a pastor, from an author or whatever, okay? Everybody's going to face these kind of pressures from well-meaning people, sincere people who think think they're they're doing you a favor, they're looking out for your good. Well, that's what Peter thought, but he wasn't, was he? And so it's critical to know God and to follow his path rather than allow others to force you on the wrong path, okay? You know, by all means, there is safety in numbers. And the book of Proverbs says, we, we, yeah, we, we need to surround ourselves with godly counselors. But at the same time, remember, they're not inspired of God. They're, they're finite human beings. And so as you listen to other people, even well-meaning people who love you dearly and are looking out for your interest, remember, you have to go God's way. Listen for the Spirit What does the Word of God say? Do His will, God's will. Number two, you must submit to God's will and refuse to impose your will on Him. (laughs) Nobody should dictate to Christ what kind of Lord He should be. That's what Peter was doing, though. And and we do the same thing sometimes, just as Peter's doing. Disciples were imposing their will on Christ. Christ. We try to fashion Christ into our own image. Now, wait a minute. You know, Christ is not matching my image. This is the image I want Christ to be. You know, I'm going I'm to make my own idol here. We try to squeeze Christ into our box, so to speak. We want Christ to cooperate with our preferences. Now, wait a minute. My preference is for me to be healthy. And when we're not healthy, we, we balk and we complain and we. Oh, isn't that just like us? <laughs> We have a hard time submitting to God's will. Peter and the disciples wanted to mold Jesus after their image. They wanted wanted this Messiah to be a conquering Messiah. They wanted Him to overthrow the Romans. And they refused to accept the reality that He was the suffering servant that the prophet Isaiah said He came to be. Sadly, this mistake's been repeated throughout history. It's probably been repeated in your life, and you might be guilty of it yourself. So... I'm simply saying this, don't allow this to happen to you. Don't you be guilty of doing this as well. Instead, we need to submit to God's will, whatever that is. Number three, you must live for the eternal future reality. You must live for the eternal future reality. Jesus is very clear on this matter here. What does God demand? God demands we seek the things above, Colossians 3 says, not the things on the earth. And this means a radical surrender of the world's ways. It's a radical surrender of the world's priorities. And and to gain heaven, Jesus says, you must lose the earth. To gain heaven, you must lose earth. To find Christ, you must forfeit your life. And, And that's how it works. It's a paradox, isn't it? What does this involve? It involves living for the eternal future reality, and it includes giving up the temporary present desires you might have, whatever those are. So my friend, I ask you, what are you living for? What are you living for? Are you living for wealth, possessions, status, or something else? your own pleasures and desires. If you are, my friend, then you're gaining the world now, but what you lose is, is far more important than any of those things, anything you can think of on this earth. You'll lose way more in the future than you can gain now. So, my friend, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. You need to serve God. You need to live for Him because that's worth it. Number four. Realize your actions have eternal consequences. Your actions have eternal consequences. This truth, does, by the way, doesn't contradict the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Okay? It, it, it does reflect a healthy tension between faith and works, though. The Bible says places like Ephesians 2 and James 2 were saved only by the grace of God. But the Bible also says that true salvation will result in works. Faith without works is dead, the Bible says. And so in Matthew 16, the stress, by the way, here is, is on the reward that Christ is bringing with him. But there's also the other side of the coin, so to speak. The passage also warns of judgment. For those who choose to, to go with this world, if they choose the things of this earth, there's also that side of it. Judgment is to come. So both judgment and reward, in one sense, are, are on the basis of your deeds, God's going to reward you on your works, what you do. So don't forget, your actions have eternal consequences. If you want to choose this earth, you're going to suffer. Number five, live like Christ is returning at any moment. By the way, if you don't believe He is, that's fine, okay? But you should still live that way, okay? All right, even if, even if you... If you don't believe in the pre-trib rapture view, that's fine. Not a, it's not an essential of the faith. But no matter what your view is on the rapture, you should still live like He's going to come. The Bible talks to us we're to be watching, we're to be ready. Love, in fact, Second Timothy four, love the thought of His return. And so, the return of Christ is characterized by imminence. The idea is that He could return at any moment. So, I ask you, my friend, are you ready? Are you watching? He is coming again. He promised He would, and He will. The other thing I was just thinking about as I was, I was studying this passage is, do you realize that Judas heard everything Jesus said here? Have you thought about that? Judas is one of the twelve. And so I, I, I just exhort you to, to not be like Judas. Judas is hearing all of this stuff that... You know, Christ is going to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to be he's going to be murdered, but he's going to rise again. And because Jesus gave himself, then I need to give myself to Christ. This is what a true follower of Christ looks like. Judas is hearing all this stuff. Did he get it? No, he didn't get it. He died without Christ. In fact, remember Jesus sent Judas out of the room before they partook of the Lord's supper. You go do, he sent him on his mission to betray him. Here's somebody who heard all of this good teaching and did nothing with it. If anything, he rejected it, didn't he? He rejected Christ. He rejected the Messiah. He rejected his, his only hope of salvation. So, my friend, please don't do that. Please don't be a Judas. And and listen to this wonderful passage that Jesus taught here, and then do nothing with it. Take it to heart. Be, as James 1 says, be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. So, So again, my friend, notice this passage says that Jesus gave himself for you. He gave his all for you. Have you given yourself to Christ?